Welcome to Crash Course with me, Michael Walker. Today I was going to be releasing the second episode in my series on migration, but I've decided to postpone that and instead do an episode on the Gaza war. Now, this isn't a new show, so I'm not going to try and give you all of the most up-to-date developments in the war, but I did think it was worth using this podcast to take a step back and go into the broader context behind it. What are the underlying conditions out of which this latest chapter in the conflict has emerged? And what can that tell us about where it might go next? To find out, I was very grateful to be joined by two distinguished experts on Israel-Palestine. Ben White is an analyst and writer and author of four books, including Cracks in the Wall, Beyond Apartheid in Palestine, Israel. Andrew Cardi is a human rights activist and member of the Al-Shabaka Palestinian Policy Network. You're listening to Crash Course with me, Michael Walker. To support the podcast and get full access to all previous episodes and series, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. Ben, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me on Crash Course. Good to be here. Good to be here. Good to be here. Um, we're going to be focusing, I suppose, more on the, the longer term causes of the current Gaza war. Um, of course, the most proximate one is Hamas's incursion into Israel on Saturday when its militants killed at least 1,200 people. And there's a debate going on in the UK at the moment about what they should be classified as. The BBC are under lots of pressure to stop talking about them as militants and start calling them terrorists. Of course, they're also an organisation which were elected. Um, they, they got the most votes when uh, Gazans last voted in 2006. Obviously, that was a long time ago. Um, how should people understand Hamas as as a group and as an actor in this conflict? Um, well, I mean, I think it's useful to remember some of the, I think probably some of just the basic history, I guess, as kind of like a, um, a sort of timeline of some of the key elements, really, I suppose. Um it's founded in 1987, so like the late 1980s, in the context of the the first intifada in the in the, in the occupied West Bank and Gaza Strip. So uh, Hamas itself, you know, despite being such a um, you know a large part of um, current the current day situation, and also of course events in recent years, relatively speaking, a more recent. Uh, um, uh, you know, organization, right? Com- when compared to other elements and constituent parts of of uh, Palestinian politics and, and society, and so on, uh, came out of a Muslim Brotherhood context. Um, like I say, during the the very beginning of the the first Intifada, uh, and it's it's always had these sort of twin elements: um, part of the Palestinian national movement, and also an Islamist organization in terms of its sort of. Um, social dimensions and, and political aspects of its political philosophy. Um, like I say, it's had that social element, that political element, uh, and also an armed an armed element as well um, in, the, in the context of being part of that Palestinian national movement. Um, you mentioned the elections. That was in 2006, which was the first time that it had participated in uh, elections for, again, this was for Palestinians who were in the occupied West Bank and Gaza Strip only. Um, which they won in the in the legislative council, uh, and that was you know that was a victory that wasn't accepted um, by, well, I mean by 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 a lot of people, uh, both Israel uh, um, regional regional parties, international parties, uh, and there was 
and I, that also kind of set in set in train um, a series of events that eventually led to a very violent split between Hamas and Fatah, the two sort of most dominant Palestinian uh, parties and organizations. Uh, in 2007, when when Hamas assumed de facto control of the Gaza Strip, um, so this is these are some of the kind of key elements here, and uh, you know, in general. When there are polls done of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, which are done fairly frequently, um, in terms of people's like voting intentions, despite the fact, of course, there hasn't been an election since since two thousand and six, uh, but uh, voting intentions tend to show that around either a bit more or a bit less than one in three people would vote for Hamas if there was an election tomorrow. Something similar for Fatah. And you know other smaller parties uh, or don't knows, and that that that's reasonably stable, I would say, in terms of um, a fairly kind of long term uh, sort of polling history. Um, you know, in recent years, si- since they took over Gaza in two thousand and seven, um, you know, they've been the de facto authority there, but the de facto authority in you know a territory that's that's not a state. It's it's you know part of this geopolitical unit of the occupied Palestinian territory um it's there's been the blockade obviously as well and you know it's it's faced these in the Gaza context specifically it's faced these challenges and tensions around being an organization that you know from its origins and you know through to today is is a, a movement or organization that defines itself in that national Palestinian movement context and the context of the occupation and so on um but now, or since 2007, also in charge of and responsible for uh, as the de facto authority in Gaza, you know, its population, its you know, its entire population, and yeah, I think the the, the sort of growing challenges of, of of that, or the tensions between that, um, the difficult living conditions, I mean, diff- difficult sort of putting it putting it mildly, but the the, the living conditions in Gaza. Um, in, alongside sort of what's been happening on the Israeli government side of things, particularly of course in the last year anyway, um, uh, with the with Netanyahu's sort of far right ultranationalist coalition and the steps they've been taking, I'm sure we'll, we might address that separately anyway. You know, that those are those are some of the factors I think there that have kind of in part at least part informed uh, and what led to the decision within you know within parts of the organization at least to embark on you know embark on such a large scale attack as we as we saw a few days ago you know i suppose you know two things that people have sort of noticed i suppose is maybe an understatement about hamas is is one they seem very competent you know p- people didn't seem to no one seems to have imagined that they sort of could have carried out a, an attack and an incursion this successful and also they seem like They've been fairly brutal, you know, killing 260 people at a music festival. Is uh, Are either of those things new? You know, are either of these things developments in sort of the nature of Hamas? Or is could either of these things actually have been expected if for anyone who sort of followed the organization closely? I might jump in here just to say a few things. Um, I think the first is that uh, these organizations, for example, Hamas as a militant uh, group and also now as some form of governing body, right? Because the truth is, and we'll get into this later, neither Hamas nor the Palestinian Authority are actually governing uh, anything. They don't really have power 
and they've sort of been given the keys to these small bantustans. Uh, and in the case of Gaza with Hamas, uh, what's essentially um, like a large ghetto, and they have um, and they have this very challenging. You know, uh, Ben just mentioned the kind of lack of popularity these parties have, and I think a part of that is these groups, particularly Hamas, but Fatah in its origin as well, are straddling the line between being resistance uh, groups and now being told, oh, hey, you have to govern and, and do state building, uh, when in fact they have no authority and no power to do any real state building and no control over the territories that they are supposedly state building in. Um, beyond that, I would say that, um, you know, I mean, what we saw uh, over this past week was pretty devastating, uh, both in terms of uh, the number of Israeli civilians that lost their lives uh, to this kind of violence, and also <clears throat> now we're seeing a sort of uh, cold-blooded retribution uh, on the part of the Israeli government uh, that that you know people have said is is worse than they've seen in the past. But the truth is, for those of us who have watched it in every round, uh, the carnage is unspeakable at every turn, and this is the first time that it comes in response to uh, an actually significant civilian count uh, of Israelis who have lost their lives. Uh, typically, this is a sort of, uh, there's an extreme imbalance between uh, the impact that, you know, Hamas, for example, in firing its homemade rockets uh, has had versus the ability of a uh, nation state with its army and billions of dollars from the U.S. and its ability to bombard the Gaza Strip. Um, sorry, I lost the I lost the thread. I was going to say uh, that I think, oh, what I was going to say is I think that something to consider is we don't know how far these this group of, of uh, fighters that were you know, sort of deployed from Gaza by Hamas really expected to get. Uh, and this is definitely something that's unprecedented, right? We haven't seen anything like this. Uh, and I don't know after being, uh, I, I think something to consider is that these fighters have probably spent decades isolated in the Gaza Strip with very little interaction. I mean, when I speak to Palestinians from Gaza who have somehow made it out, right, their families are almost always still in Gaza, but they've made it to the US. They routinely express a level of shock at meeting Israelis. Because prior to that, their interactions with Israelis were purely in a military sense. Bombardment of their houses, a soldier shows up in their neighborhood, uh, announcements on Palestinian news coming from Israeli government officials, uh, things that don't really uh, provide you much access to understand like what you're dealing with other than the brutality and force that you're experiencing. Um, and even the folks who have had some access or who understand, and I'll give an example, uh, Rifat Al-Arir, uh, who's uh, an author, an editor, uh, was an instructor at, I think, the Islamic University teaching Hebrew, uh, Hebrew literature, for example, has a good understanding of the history. There is so much trauma uh, and so such a vicious experience with Israelis in any form 
and such an exposure to a dehumanization in the language that Israelis use, which I think we'll get into later, that it is difficult even for someone like that to be able to see past it, and understandably so. Um, and I think that a lot of people I know have been circulating things like uh, Franz Fanon and some of the uh, writings he had on what it looked like to witness the Algerian uprising and the uh, sort of brutality of uh, these, you know, uh, resistance fighters and the way that they treat they treated colonizers. And I think that that is all valid. And also we can hold space for the fact that uh, these are human beings and that these folks who were massacred, um, you know, in their homes and, and other places uh, had families and uh, didn't did. There is no justification or reason that they deserved to be killed. And by that, I mean the Israelis, but I think that there has to be a moral consistency and that has to apply to Palestinians in Gaza as well. Th that makes so much sense. And actually, I'm, I'm, I'm quite surprised. I've been obviously reading about this all, all week. It's been sort of wall to wall on, on the news. And I haven't actually heard that explanation really of what we've seen. And I think that's incredibly, incredibly um, persuasive uh, as an explanation of sort of the scenes we've seen, the shocking scenes i think obviously you know this conversation so quickly often gets tied up into are you justifying xyz by explaining it and i think it is important to take a, a step back and try and be sort of empiricists about this to some degree um you mentioned in your answer andrew sort of that that neither hamas nor fatah have real power in the areas which they sort of supposedly govern so fatah in 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 the west bank and Hamas in Gaza. And I suppose that brings us on to the question of the occupation. And I suppose I want to talk particularly about the occupation of Gaza, because this is uh, a complicated topic. Whenever I'm on sort of Twitter and talk about the occupation of Gaza, I'll have loads of people in my replies saying, you idiot, Gaza isn't under occupation. Israel left in, in 2005, because there was a formal withdrawal of the few settlers that were there and troops in 2005. And that's why Israel say, oh, we ended the occupation of Gaza. Why are you, why are you complaining? Why are you talking to us? Why, why are you saying we've done anything wrong? This is not our responsibility. At the same time, the UN, human rights groups, they all say the occupation never ended. Gaza is still under occupation. So how should, how should people understand this question of whether or not Gaza is occupied by Israel? First and foremost, since 1967, uh, Israel has been the military occupier of the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, and occupied East Jerusalem. Under the, the Geneva Conventions, they have a responsibility to the population that they are militarily occupying in the Gaza Strip uh, to ensure that their rights are preserved, to ensure that they are not colonizing, right? The Fourth Geneva Convention says you can't establish colonies, settlements essentially, uh, on those lands. And you can't transfer your population right uh, onto those lands. Israel says that it left in 2005, uh, unilateral withdrawal, all those things. Uh, yet Israel still controls uh, the land borders uh, all around Gaza, with the exception of the Rafah crossing, which actually it does control as well through coordination with Egypt. Um, Israel controls the water around Gaza. Uh, for example, if you are fishing, you can't go beyond a certain number of nautical miles. And in fact, actually, Israel doesn't even respect the agreements that it's come to with regard to how many nautical miles Palestinians can travel out uh, when they're seeking food, essentially, right? I mean, that's a key part of the Palestinian livelihood is 
the ability to fish and and get seafood, uh, Israel has maintained a what it calls the buffer zone, a significant chunk of the Gaza Strip that Israel does not allow Palestinian farmers to access, despite it being some of the most arable land in the Gaza Strip, and despite the fact that for uh, decades, maybe centuries, Palestinians have been growing uh, crops there. In fact, uh, you know, we've seen sort of mounted semi-automatic weapons that fire on people who uh, choose to come to that land just to go uh, harvest their crop, uh, which is disgraceful. So Israel continues to control not only the sea, not only the land borders, but also the air through drones, uh, right? The surveillance drones that are constantly buzzing above the Gaza Strip. Israel continues to manage uh, the the population registry of Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, which is something people don't pay attention to. In fact, Israel continues to manage the population registry for the entirety of the occupied Palestinian population that lives in the West Bank and Gaza Strip uh, in East Jerusalem. So in reality, Israel has virtually full control over the Gaza Strip. That is precisely why in this scenario, it's able to do something like cut off electricity, isolate the Gaza Strip, completely blockade it. You know, the truth is, and you hear this so often now in the, in the past few days, is many Palestinians, uh, you, you know, they will say, well, what else can they do to us, essentially, right? Like, what more could possibly happen? Uh, and and I think I understand that sentiment because imagine that this has been going on for 16 years. Imagine that the United Nations, through the World Health Organization, I believe, declared that Gaza would be unlivable by 2020. We're now in 2023. So Israel has full control. I believe even, I, I think there's uh, maybe an oil platform, a natural gas platform, excuse me, that's off the coast of Gaza that Israel uses, right? That is something that would, I mean, would not be under Israeli control, but it is because Israel controls uh, the entirety of the Gaza Strip. And for anyone who has ever visited or never visited, if you ever go and you take any of the roads around the Gaza Strip, you will be shocked at how easy it would be to take a, a single road and drive into Gaza from any part of what's now considered Israel, right? Um, in, in West Jerusalem, there is a road called Gaza Road, right? And it literally is a road that takes you down into Gaza. So. The Gaza Strip is part and parcel of historic Palestine, and Israel is simply trying to find a way to rid itself of it uh, or to get rid of the population and be able to take over the land, which is the uh, possibility that we're facing now, quite honestly, in what's happening. And we'll we'll talk about sort of those those possibilities and what the strategy of Israel might be with respect to Gaza in a moment. I suppose I, I want to get you guys to respond to one other thing that, that's been said so often in the UK, I imagine similar in the US as well, but the West generally, where they say, Keir Starmer said it, loads of Labour politicians have said it, they said, what's so shocking about Hamas's actions, what's so frustrating about Hamas's actions is that they've set back the peace process, right? Because all all liberal politicians, Labour politicians in the UK say, we are committed to the two-state solution, but we have to get there by, you know, everyone playing their part and the Palestinians have to be peaceful and sort of make sure they conform to the conditions of this peace process. And I'm sort of watching this thinking, is there a peace process? Is, it doesn't seem like there is a peace process. I mean, can you, can you guys enlighten me? Sure. Uh, I mean, 
first and foremost, when you look at uh, the PLO, for example, the Palestine Liberation Organization, uh, which recognized Israel as a state in 1993, I believe, and signed the Oslo Accords with the expectation that they would be able to establish a Palestinian state in the occupied West Bank and Gaza Strip uh, with East Jerusalem as its capital is what their hope was, but that was left to further negotiation. Uh, first and foremost, Israel divided the occupied West Bank into three different uh, three different sections, areas A, B, and C, right? And it divided the way that it would be governed, uh, and it sort of established the at its at its root at the core of these agreements established its method for ensuring that there could be no Palestinian state up front. Between 1993 and 2000, I, I should clarify the area A, B, and C, A is the only one that is truly controlled by the Palestinian Authority, and it represents a small percentage, tiny percentage of the occupied West Bank. Um, between 1993 and 2000, Israel, I think something like doubled its settlements or its settler population. Uh, since that time, right, and then 2000, of course, you have the start of what's called the Al-Aqsa Intifada or the Second Intifada. But between those times, that is a seven-year period, Israel demonstrated it had no intention of establishing a Palestinian state. The two-state negotiation and discourse continued from 2000 on through that Intifada, that uprising. And during that time, Yasser Arafat, right, the... Uh, original, uh, the, the head of the PLO at the time of the uh, accords that were signed, died, right? And Mahmoud Abbas came into power, and Mahmoud Abbas has become easily the most compliant Palestinian president, uh, you know, of this, of the Palestinian Authority, of the PLO, that uh, Israel has ever dealt with. And yet the discourse that there was no partner for peace continued for years and years, Nothing progressed, and actually the only thing that progressed were the number of Israeli settlements, the Israeli settlement population. You might remember when Barack Obama was president and they were asking for a settlement freeze. Joe Biden, now the president of the United States, uh, landed uh, there, at, I think landed in Tel Aviv, and essentially, or landed in Israel, and essentially uh, when he landed, he, they, the Israelis declared that they, had, uh, that they were developing a, a whole slew of new settlements, right, of settlement units. And the United States government did not do anything. In fact, I remember at the time that there was a poll taken of uh, people in the US of what they thought should be the consequence for doing that. I think it was on Wolf Blitzer's show with Jack Cafferty. And in the poll, the majority of Americans said that aid should be conditioned to Israel. That never happened. Israel has just continued like lawlessly in expanding its settlement enterprise continued to occupy uh, more and more parts of the West Bank. And by that, I mean to uh, to encroach further upon the different areas that are considered controlled by the Palestinian Authority, right? Area B is considered a joint control area, but in reality, the Israeli military continues to operate in that area. And it's become very evident that Israel has no intention of establishing or allowing the establishment of a Palestinian state. I think that Anyone who visits the occupied West Bank will be able to see it. Uh, I traveled at one point with a journalist who intended to write about Salam Fayyad and the two-state solution. And after our travels through the occupied West Bank, he concluded that there was no such thing as a two-state solution, that it was uh, just kind of a myth that was being 
perpetuated. I think the discourse has allowed Israel to continue to expand its settlement enterprise, to occupy Palestinians, and to look for ways for Palestinians to increasingly leave those occupied territories uh, to facilitate more and more uh, Jewish settlement of those areas. And I mean, that, as you said, that seems to have been a pretty consistent policy. I mean, I suppose forever in a way, but you know, th- th- that seems to have been what really undermined the Oslo process. I mean, some people think it was, you know, a failure from the start, but I know Avi Schleim, sort of the, the Israeli historian, he suggests, you know, Israel had a choice. They could have chosen land or peace and they chose land. They continued with the settlements and that meant that there was no peace process and there could be no peace process. I suppose a, a newer development, although he has been around for a while, is, is Netanyahu and especially his new far-right coalition. And I suppose I wanted to know from you guys, you know, to what extent is it relevant that Israel now has a far-right government or is the story just continuity anyway? Does it make any difference that he is in government with with a bunch of far-right people now that this uh, this new conflict has arisen? If I can just jump back, Michael, to one other point about the idea of a peace process, which is to say, um, aside from all the things I said, another fundamental piece that is completely left out of the peace process and the idea of two states are Palestinian citizens of Israel, right? So my family are Palestinian citizens of Israel and they are not equal under the law. And we can talk about that a little bit more later on, but they do not have equal rights under Israeli law. So they can vote, but they can't buy land in the majority of the country, the vast majority of the country. Uh, They are not allowed to live in smaller towns within the Israeli state. So that is another piece that's just completely left out of this discourse that demonstrates actually the fallacy of an Israeli democracy, which I think transitions us to the question about the far-right government. And I don't know if, Ben, you want to jump in here. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think what you said, Michael, about or the question about, you know, is there, are we talking about a continuity? Are we talking about some changes? And I think it's fair to say that there's, there's both. Um, there's continuity in the sense that it's you know, it, there's. I think some. You know, sometimes the 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 actions of of this current coalition. Um, you know, it's been around for you know ten ten months or so. Uh, sometimes those actions are presented as this big rupture or a big break or something. Or you know, almost like radically different or a radical departure. And that's and that's that's not fair or accurate really in terms of um, some of the things that Andrew's already discussed. Right, um, the settlements that have been. Uh, expanding under this government, you know, didn't most of them, or almost all of them, didn't start under this government, right? Their settlements are being added to and expanded that have been there, um, you know, a very long time. Settlements that were founded under Israeli governments of, you know, varying types of coalitions, including coalitions that um, featured parties from the sort of the Zionist center, like Labour and so on. Um, but it is also fair to say that there is a change and there is a difference in the sense of, and I think actually perhaps this could be best illustrated maybe by thinking about other types of Netanyahu-led governments that there have been before this point. And, um, you know, some have argued, and I and, and I kind of have, I have sympathy with this view, that previous iterations of Netanyahu governments, um, yes, completely opposed to Palestinian sovereignty, completely opposed to self-determination, um, but perhaps focused in a way on maintaining the status quo, right? Not necessarily any big radical changes. And when I say the status quo, you know, the sort of the de facto single state or the de facto single regime that exists, um, where for all intents and purposes, the West Bank 
is part of of you know of this de facto Israeli controlled single state unitary state between the river and the sea, um, but it remains uh, you know predominantly a de facto form of annexation as opposed to a de jure form of annexation. Um, and I think there's been that kind of status quo approach where and, and and the people who would have been sort of supportive of that and often in fact include that often that's included people maybe also part of or or aligned with members of the security of the military establishment right where they kind of have kind of like a conservative with small c approach to you know what is effectively maintaining this military regime um you know just just keep slowly growing the settlements uh you know making sure that the palestinian population uh, um you know aren't able to fundamentally challenge the, the system that's in, in place um but don't rock the boat right and i think the difference here is is that you've got a coalition where there are where there are important members of it who actually disagree with that approach who actually say well no you know israel doesn't need to be uh, uh it, it, or, or to put it a different way israel can take the initiative israel you know there won't be international repercussions this is the argument you know there won't be international repercussions if for example we move to formally annex area c the areas that andrew was talking about area c being in terms of pure territory the largest kind of category of area in the west bank where most of the illegal israeli settlements are located you know the argument of people like smotrich for example um in the in the current government is it's so you know we'll be all right. We'll we you know the world hasn't basically you know, basically hasn't stopped us doing whatever we've been doing to date. Now why why would why would there be any particularly serious consequences beyond sort of the, you know a telling off to if we advance again from from that perspective what is our biblical land what is Israel's land etc. So I think that that's probably a, a fair point to note that there's a difference that that is mixed in with the continuity and certainly you can see again from january onwards in a whole host of areas uh, a coalition government that proceeded in different ways to intensify uh, a number of policy areas that were already bad right so home demolitions in occupied east jerusalem for example have, have spiked under or spiked under this you know this current government um settlement expansion the the uh, the formalization of the status of so-called illegal outposts or unauthorized outposts, i.e., the kind of uh, uh, the settlements where the Israeli occupation authorities have given kind of a wink and a, and a nod to settlers creating extensions of existing settlements or create new ones. That kind of stuff has proceeded, as has a number of moves that were taken on a kind of a bureaucratic uh, uh, um, sort of legislative level to. Uh, um, begin the process of of moving towards more of a de jure uh, annexation um of 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 west bank territory so so yeah i think that's i think i think those that it's that it's both that continuity and and shift that have been at play i think yeah i would and i suppose that, sorry go on i would just add to that that i think that prior to this past the past two maybe three coalitions um there was there was an aspiration to continue to hold up the pretense of Israeli democracy. And I think that through the empowerment of the Israeli settler movement, which has really gained a stronghold um, 
we're being taken back to an era of sort of the initial uh, uh, founding of the state of Israel in the 40s, where the language has returned to being open outright and honest about what the intentions are and what the conclusions are. And I think that that becomes less palatable, though quite honestly, we're seeing it may be still very palatable to uh, other, uh, we'll call them developed nations. And I suppose it's the sad truth that maybe Netanyahu and the far right were correct. I mean, obviously not morally correct, but in terms of we can take this gamble. Actually, we're overestimating the extent to which the international community is holding us back to the extent to which, I mean, obviously they weren't really following international law anyway, but the the pretense of sort of like at least some pretense of liberal niceties, they can abandon. They could just say, screw it. We don't care anymore. Might is right. And everyone will just accept that. And not only does it seem that everyone has kind of accepted that, but they've actually made advances when it comes to Israel's role in the world. So Netanyahu was successful in the Abraham Accords of, of making deals with the UAE and Bahrain. Um, he this year has been talking about all the Americans. Biden seems to be sort of the, the spearhead of this. A deal with the Saudis, a normalization deal with Saudi Arabia, which would be you know a, a huge diplomatic coup for, for Israel. And in fact, actually, that's one of the explanations I've seen as to why Hamas might have mounted this attack now. I've got no idea really to the credibility of that. But I suppose, yeah, if you could talk a bit about how Netanyahu seems to have got away with it, how he has managed to sort of have decent relationships, even with Arab states, while he's carrying out this sort of bare-faced oppression of the of the Palestinians. And if that might have had anything to do with sort of Hamas taking this enormous risk right now. Yeah, uh, well, you're, you're right to say that um, the reg regional developments like the normalization of ties with some of the Gulf countries, the Abraham Accords context, um, the sort of bubbling story about Saudi-Israeli normalization, you know, that's definitely a, 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 an element there that the folks who are going to be saying, right, you know, we, we don't need to be shy, basically, about... Um, we may, we may not need to be shy about actually annexing the West Bank territory. We certainly don't need to be shy about not 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 advancing and you know effectively actively opposing um, Palestinian sovereignty and self determination because actually um, we can focus on keeping that a a, a sort of quote unquote humanitarian issue. Right? There was you know before the Netanyahu government. There was this fairly short-lived coalition um, with a, you know a few different parties. Probably not probably not the time to kind of get into the nitty-gritty of that. But the reason I'm mentioning it is because Naftali Bennett, who was you know uh, one of the rotating prime ministers there, um, his he sort of you know pushed for the time that he was uh, uh, in office um, and sort of folks around it would push this idea of quote unquote shrinking the occupation and. You know, it was it was really and is really just another kind of like buzzword phrase for a quite familiar concept, which is, you know, uh, the way to quote unquote solve the Palestinian problem is to focus on uh, improving the Palestinian economy, um, create uh, uh, you know industrial zones um, where Palestinians can have jobs. Um, you know th this type of approach, uh, and and that this will be an alternative to, 
you know, demands and 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 sort of national rights for for for, for self determination, independence, and so on. And that they, you know, there there are some then in in the Gulf, right, who see that as okay. You know, that's something we can that's something we can live with, right? That's something where you know, even if there are these kind of like concessions that are primarily economic concessions, they're they're not concessions in the sense that you're moving meaningfully towards um resolving any of your national rights uh we can kind of proceed on that basis right and uh it's certainly been a it certainly was a you know it's a boot the 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 regional context with the with the abraham accords with the normalization with the gulf states but also other areas right like israel's relationship with india israel's uh relationship with um some of the some of the the governments in 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 europe uh, I mean, these things fluctuate, of course, because, for example, you know, one would have also cited, for example, Israel's kind of relationship with a Bolsonaro-led Brazil, which, of course, is no longer the case. But in general, there have been in recent years, uh, you know, enough examples of of warm, close ties, you know, for economic, military, intelligence reasons that advocates on the Israeli side of saying we don't actually need to care about the Palestinian national question. Not only, well, not even do we not only care, this could actually be a route to further undermining and further sabotaging the Palestinian national question. Um, I, on, the, on the specific question of whether the kind of Israeli-Saudi stuff was a, a trigger or, or some type of like connection to, to uh, the Hamas attack, I, I, I personally don't don't see that myself. I mean, I, I certainly haven't seen too many, too many kind of people who 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 I think you know know what they're talking about. Kind of buying too much into that. Um, I think there's, I think like like we've kind of mentioned, and there's other factors at play there, really. I think, and most serious observers as well, you know, really felt like if there was to be a Israeli Saudi normalization deal of the sort of size and magnitude that the US clearly was was looking for, um, that it wasn't sort of, you know, round the corner that this type of thing would have really taken quite some time or would take some time to materialise. Um but yeah, the uh, um yeah, you know, one of the interesting sort of sort of detached from the human element, one of the interesting geopolitical questions, let's say, of the current moment, of course, is to what extent and in what way um Israel's ties and relationships with uh, uh, those countries that have had warmer, warmer relations more recently will be affected by by what sort of unfolding. And I suppose let's get to what's unfolding because sorry, do you, Andrew, did you want to add something? Well, I just want to add one one thing about the timing. I, I know that there's been so much speculation about the timing. I really want to emphasize in Gaza today, right? Fifty percent of the population are children. 40% or 42% are under the age of 14. The unemployment rate among people who could work is something like 50%. Electricity is available for a couple of hours a day. Water uh, is undrinkable and generally living conditions are pretty dire with a lot of medical supplies missing uh, and a lack of a lot of the, the food, the rations that people historically had. And this is a place that used to be plentiful, right? That used to actually be a lot of farmland filled with agriculture, 
a lot of products that were available and also a, a hub for import export. So when you think about what is happening, I think most people who are paying attention on a day-to-day -day basis see that this is a, a, I mean, it's a, it's a pressure pot. Like this was inevitable in a way because you see what's happening on a daily basis and it just seemed like the pressure continued to build. And it's the same thing in the occupied West Bank, actually. And it's something that people have talked about recently with the rise of groups like the Lion's Den and other armed resistance factions that are not a part or beholden to these traditional party structures. Um, I think Palestinians have reached the sort of limit. And I think that's a large part of, of what's happening and also a large part of the reaction probably of Palestinians in Gaza. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So we shouldn't, you know, it, it's not necessarily there was some sort of cost benefit analysis and they decided that now was the time to do this because they want to have a sort of diplomatic say and stuff. It's, you know, it, there was a powder keg. And if you have a powder keg, then sometimes it's going to explode. Um, right. And it seems evident that they were preparing for this for quite a while, right? This isn't something that they did or decided to do in a matter of weeks or months. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense as well. I suppose before we get on to the implications actually what you've just said has made me think if this had been planned for so long you know i'd have thought you know it's this has been discussed a lot in the media but it, i suppose it can also tell us something about hamas and sort of israel's relationship to it which is you know was it not massively infiltrated i mean the ira one of the things that sort of undermined them was that the british managed to put shed loads of agents in them have the israelis just failed to buy off anyone in gaza who might have tip them off because shed loads of people were involved in this it just it just seems somewhat unbelievable that this could have been planned for a very long time and the israelis not found out yeah i mean i think the only the, just one thing i thought i would kind of say to that is yes there's been a lot of focus on sort of what's talked about as like intelligence failures or you know like operational failures let's say on the israeli side um and yeah like your question speaks obviously to some of the um you know some some of the aspects of intelligence gathering and 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 so on um, that you know clearly didn't kind of work in this case. But I think I think it's also just in, it's kind of worthwhile kind of thinking about how uh, you know intelligence and, and and military capability is on the one hand it's about your resources and your technology, but it but it's also about you know what you expect from the other side. It's about um, it's about paradigms and about how you're interpreting data, right? Um, you can have all the technology in the world and all the ability to gather information, but if you're set in a particular way of interpreting it or understanding what you expect from a particular group or a context, you'll get it wrong. And I think that's an aspect of uh, uh, an aspect of the failure that is potentially more significant than. The mechanics of of you know espionage and, and and infiltration and so on right right i would say that for for anyone who pays attention to the way that israeli intelligence operates um both the shabak and also the mossad there's extreme pathologizing of palestinians extreme pathologizing of uh these groups these kind of like uh caricatures that are created at some point and I think, quite honestly, a part of the dehumanization of Palestinians uh, that exists uh, includes uh, sort of underestimating people and dehumanizing them to a degree that you 
uh, downplay their intelligence and you downplay their abilities and their innovation and all those things. And obviously, you know, I don't mean to, I, I would not say this in a gleeful way, but I mean, truthfully, what we saw was quite innovative, right? Like people, uh, people who have been downtrodden to this degree with their electricity cut, beaten down over several military campaigns, experiencing a lack of all of these resources, and people were propelling themselves uh, on hand gliders or paragliders up from, you know, some kind of like a fan that was propelling people in the footage that I saw. Uh, and then the ability to demolish the fence and break through it. And then also the like sort of amphibian component. Uh, I, I think that, you know, it, it demonstrates something about how Israeli intelligence views uh, some of these uh, folks and these groups. I suppose actually that's, that especially relates to Gaza, perhaps, because, I mean, in terms of sort of the divide and rule strategy of Israel, it seemed as if, you know, as you say, you've got the, the, the Israeli, sort of the Palestinian citizens of Israel, who they can't get rid of, but they just sort of lower their rights, so they seem less threatening to everyone else. Um, then you've got the West Bank, which is just sort of slowly crippling. And then you've got Gaza, which was, you know, for demographic reasons, I think was one of the reasons they sort of pulled out because they thought, oh, there's too many ethnic, there's too many Palestinians here. We don't want them to be part of Israel. So let's just dump them over here and forget about them. And I suppose the policy with Gaza for a long time has been dump them there and forget about them while ensuring their lives are miserable. And I suppose, you know, you, you don't worry if there's Absolutely. violent people in a prison near you because you assume they're going to stay in the prison and you think you can forget about them. And and, and this has been a reminder that, that that hasn't worked. It's been a shock. Um, and And I think that, I think that statement's actually evidenced by the fact that there was a like a, a massive music festival happening within two miles of uh, the Gaza Strip, right? Yeah, absolutely. And let, 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 let's talk about what might happen next. And I mean, I suppose what the worrying picture that's been painted is you've got a a far right government that isn't bothering with the pretenses of of previous governments that says, you know, we don't actually have to tolerate the status quo. We can take bold moves and change the situation, not slowly, not sort of in an incremental manner, but sort of in a big bang way. You've also got, you know, is an excuse the right way of putting it? You've got this opportunity, which has been given by this attack to take bold dramatic action under the cover of sort of, you know, everyone's putting Israeli flags on their parliaments and that's being projected everywhere. I assume there's a bunch of people speaking to Netanyahu saying, now is your chance and you have to take it clear out the Gaza Strip. I mean, is that is that plausible? Is that possible? I just want to kind of maybe refer back to something you were saying about the withdrawal, right? The, re the withdrawal of settlers, the redeployment that took place in 2005. You know, you mentioned kind of demographic reasons. And yeah, that's 100% a factor. You know, it was also a move at the time designed to kind of... Um, alleviate some even kind of modest international pressure that had kind of built around sort of the the peace process framework um uh it was an advisor an advisor to the prime minister at the time who said that the point of that so-called disengagement process was to freeze the post the feed to freeze the peace process right um but of course sort of in doing that uh you know it also created a kind of dilemma or problem in the end as well from from the Israeli perspective. Um, the Gaza Strip is not a state, right? Um, it's but Israel created this category of like enemy entity for the Gaza Strip, you know, as a way of trying to wash its hands of its 
obligations as a as an occupying power, but of course not recognizing actually like a you know a sovereign entity in the Gaza Strip. And over the years, there's been this sort of status quo. Um, there's 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 the whole there's the whole kind of like military political strategy on the Israeli side that's often referred to as mowing the lawn, where you have you know periodic uh, uh, assaults on the Gaza Strip, um, which are intended to both diminish or reduce um, the sort of limited military capacity of groups in Gaza, but also to serve as like a kind of psychological blow, let's say. Um, uh, but you, there's always been this sort of, you know, unease about, well, you know, can we just keep on doing this same thing every now, you know, every so often, you know, is this, I'm saying from the Israeli perspective, you know, is this a, is a sustainable, is this a kind of, you know, realistic approach to keep going? And in that conversation, there's always been voices that have advocated for a more drastic or radical approach, right? So, for, you know, such as, for example, um, not just a land, uh, uh, you know, not just kind of a, a ground war, but actually, you know, physical conquering or reconquering of the of the territory, and and holding it, right, holding it in the sense that you've redeployed, you know, an occupation army back into the territory. Um, and I think certainly in the current context, there is a high probability that some certainly something along that along those lines would will occur um but there are worse contingencies as well which is that in the context of that type of ground invasion uh, and and um the huge level of violence that that will um necessarily entail that you create a situation where you're not only killing thousands or you know even tens of thousands of people but you're also in so doing creating a forced displacement, expulsion of people, and creating a flow of of people, say, for example, from the north of the Gaza Strip down to the south, and that's actually even where the type of stuff that I've seen, you know, discussed in the last kind of, I think maybe it's just in the last day, um, about the so-called humanitarian co corridor out of Gaza into Egypt. You know, people have been experts have been flagging that there is a big problem or a big danger with that with that approach or that conversation because it's 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 raised as uh you know um as a way of protecting civilians supposedly you know um but uh you know that's also a way of getting rid of palestinians in the gaza strip and the palestinian history of course is replete uh with from the nakba onwards examples of um mass displacement, mass expulsions, um, you know, including in contexts where it's, I, you know, supposedly or framed as a kind of temporary, quote-unquote, temporary displacement for, for, for different reasons uh, that become permanent. So, yeah, I think, I think that those types of scenarios, unfortunately, are ones that we have to contemplate as being, being you know, a, 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 a possibility. Yeah, and Michael, if I can, you know, I really want to center sort of these experiences, the experiences of uh, the Palestinians who are living in Gaza, right? These are, Palestinians in Gaza are 70% refugees, right? And the meaning refugees from what's now become the state of Israel. Um, 
many of those people are actually from those very areas that were attacked in this recent uh, Hamas attack, right? And these are folks, and, and for folks who don't know, the areas around the Gaza Strip historically, many of those areas were part of the Gaza district in historic Palestine. And so many of those folks migrated to other parts of the Gaza district and then didn't know that they would have uh, essentially like a, a fence put around them, right? And that they would no longer be able to return to their homes. Um, those those families, if they were to be displaced again, this will be the second time. And already thousands of them have been displaced uh, within the within the Gaza Strip, right? Internally displaced after already being made refugees. Um, we can go back to, and I, I do think it's actually critical to talk about the founding of the Israeli state, the implementation of martial law between 1948 and 1966 for those Palestinians who stayed, and what the sort of conditions were that created the circumstances that exist today. But I also want to take a moment here and talk about what we are sort of uh, have alluded to several times, a ground invasion, right? Um, in 2008-2009, during Israel's Operation Cast Lead, uh, a, the UN was commissioned to actually do a report, right, that became known the Goldstone Report uh, in 2011 that talked about, went, went in and gathered, I think they were actually were not allowed um, to conduct the entirety of what they wanted to do in terms of investigating by the Israeli government, but they went in and gathered testimonies and heard from people about what their experiences were um, and published what has become known as the Goldstone Report, um, which which gave us a lot of information about uh, Israeli tactics, Israeli operations. But I just want to read one excerpt, if you'd allow me, from the Goldstone Report of one family's experience so that we understand what the consequence of something like a ground invasion will be. Can I uh, can I just go through the... Yeah, please, yeah, please yeah. do. Please so, do. Uh, and, and for folks who want to know, it's on page 7, I think it's on page 174 of the Goldstone Report. Uh, here is the testimony that's collected that they later corroborated with multiple witnesses uh, and uh, and verified, basically saying they had no reason to believe this wasn't true. At about 12.50 p.m., Khaled Abid Rabbo, his wife Kaufer, their three daughters, Suad, Suad, age nine, Samar, aged five, and Amal, age three, and Khaled's mother, Hajja Suad Abd Rabbo, stepped out of the house, all of them carrying white flags. Less than 10 meters from the door was a tank, turn, an Israeli tank, turned towards their house. Two soldiers were sitting on top of it, having a snack. One was eating chips, the other chocolate, according to one of the witnesses. The family stood still, waiting for orders from the soldiers as to what they should do, but none was given. Without warning, a third soldier emerged from inside the tank and began shooting at the three girls and then also at their grandmother. Several bullets hit Suad, uh, who's age nine, in the chest, Amal, who's age three, in the stomach, and Samar, who's age five, in the back. Hajja Suad was hit in the lower back and in the left arm. That's the grandmother. Khaled and Kawthar Abid Rabbo carried their three daughters and mother back inside the house. There, they and the family members who had stayed inside tried to call for help by mobile phone. They also shouted for help, and a neighbor, Samih Atwa Rashid al-Sheikh, who was an ambulance driver, and had his ambulance parked next to his house, decided to come to their help. He put on his ambulance crew clothes, and he asked his son to put on a fluorescent jacket. They'd driven a few meters from the house, from their house, to the immediate vicinity of the Abdurrabbo house, when Israeli soldiers near the house ordered them to halt and get out of the vehicle. 
Temiech protested that he had heard cries for help from their family home and intended to bring the wounded to hospital. The soldiers ordered him and his son to undress and then redress. They then ordered them to abandon the ambulance and to walk towards Jabaliye, another town, which they complied with. When the families returned to Izbet Abid Rabbo, that's the neighborhood, on 18th of January, they found the ambulance was in the same place but had been crushed, probably by a tank. Inside the Abid Rabbo house, Amel and Suad, the children, died of their wounds. The family decided that they had to make an attempt to walk to Jabalia and take Samar, the dead bodies of Amel and Suad and their grandmother, to the hospital. Khaled and Kawthar and other family members and neighbors carried the girls on their shoulders. Hajj Suad was carried by family and neighbors on a bed. Samar was transferred to Al-Shifa Hospital and then through Egypt to Belgium, where she is still in the hospital at the time of the report. According to her parents, Samad, the surviving child, suffered a spinal injury and will remain paraplegic for the rest of her life. When the family returned, when Khaled Abedrabo returned to his home in, in January of 2009, his house, as most houses of the neighborhood, had been demolished. Those are the experiences of Palestinians when a ground invasion takes place. Yeah, it's just so shocking. And I mean... One could even imagine it would be worse this time around, right? Because, you know, the bloodlust, which we're hearing, basically, because you've got all of these Israelis and the West essentially cheerleading them, saying, you need to take revenge. If you have a ground invasion with with all of these soldiers with those attitudes, um, wanting revenge, like the, the consequences could just be, you know, untold suffering, essentially. And it doesn't seem at the moment as if we are going to have Western governments or, or the media hold them to account. I mean, it, maybe there'll be this this massive shift in, in, in public opinion across the world when sort of atrocities from the Israeli side become more apparent. And, you know, we, we see videos on the internet, but it's, it's very unclear. Um, yeah, with 200 children already dead, it seems unlikely, yeah, honestly. Yeah. I suppose that takes us to a difficult question, which is, I mean, what, what strategies are left open to the Palestinians to achieve their goals at this point in time. I mean, Israel has overwhelming force. I mean, especially when it comes to to this attack on Gaza. I mean, is, is it a case of of hoping that the Israelis don't try and take the most extreme action possible? Or, I mean, is it mobilizing certain international allies that might be a bit more sympathetic than than some, you know, North American or Western European nations? I mean what is, is there a strategy? What can be done? What can the Palestinians be doing at this point? What can international sort of figures or movements be doing to try and limit the damage here or salvage something from this situation? Sure, I think I think in the most, I, and I'll jump back to some of the historical tactics that Palestinians use, but in the immediate, I think the things that people can do first and foremost are for those who are informed and know about how to reach their, their government representatives in their various countries and have the ability to put pressure on or believe that they may see some response. And quite honestly, even uh, people who do not agree uh, or empathize with Palestinians will oftentimes acquiesce with enough pressure. I think that there's uh, definitely an importance to contacting and putting pressure on those representatives now to call for an intervention, to do something, or to take a statement or stand of some sort. I think that the other thing that Israel has responded to has been its isolation, culturally and economically. In the past, when the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement has uh, sort of lifted its pressure at times of um, heightened response, for example, when Israel attacked the 
peaceful flotilla that was trying to uh, break the siege on Gaza, uh, right? There was an immediate response and a massive campaign for economic boycotts, uh, targeting um, the Israelis, targeting the Israeli economy. And and I want to I want to specify that when you think about these boycotts, you know there is no such. People sometimes say, well, why don't you just boycott the settlements or why don't you just boycott the occupation? Those things are intermingled with the Israeli state. And there are lots of studies you can read, like uh, older studies from Shir Hever and Israeli economists that talk about this. But you can find plenty of evidence that the Israeli state, so much of, of the uh, financing for settlements, the products, so many of the things that come out of settlements are brought into the Israeli state. I mean, so many, so many different pieces demonstrate that in order to have an impact, uh, actually, the Israeli state needs to feel uh, that economic uh, and cultural boycott when artists cancel, when they decide not to perform there, when they say, I'm not going to uh, participate in this. And I think that people really have to understand that at this point, if you are a celebrity, if you are an artist, and I know so many have have made really unfortunate statements, right, that go beyond saying, hey, I uh, sympathize with those civilians who have been killed, who are Israeli, we've gone well beyond that, right? There's uh, encouragement of attacks on Palestinians in Gaza. Uh, which I think is really shameful. I think those celebrities, artists that uh, want to take a stand, they could be saying, hey, I'm not going to participate in this. I know what this is fueling. I don't want to be a part of this. Um, those are meaningful steps, right? Not everything you do has to be declared, but maybe it's still meaningful if you take a decision on your own. I think in the long term, right, there are, there are a lot of questions here about what kind of support, for example, has been demonstrated when Palestinians historically have used creative tactics, have really put pressure on the Israeli state through things like the Gaza uh, right of return march, I think, which was 2017, maybe. Sorry, it's it's been so long with uh, COVID, but like the Gaza return march, for example, was organized, Palestinians in Gaza organized into their various villages uh, in tents near the sort of fences that Israel has constructed around Gaza and they were essentially uh, demanding for their right of return, right? They're saying, hey, we are actually from the other side of this fence and we want to be allowed to return to those places. Um, I, and, and in that, by the way, over 200 Palestinian civilians unarmed were killed, right? Uh, including journalists, nurses, and other medical workers. Um, I, and historically, you know, when Palestinians were protesting the confiscation of land and the Israeli wall being constructed, they used a variety of unarmed protest tactics. And I think those are the moments where people can also demonstrate how much they actually want to, how much they actually empathize with the Palestinians and how much they actually want to support, um, right? I understand that, uh, you know, in these, in, in any sort of, even when uh, Palestinians are resisting is Israeli military forces, right? There are people who have a variety of views on violence. But then demonstrate that you actually are walking the walk and that you are going to take a principled stand by uh, taking some of these other actions then. And I think that that, that and the, the pressure, governmental pressure, and I, I want to remind listeners that in the UK and US, I mean, you're really pretty complicit in what has happened, right? And what is happening. I know, for example, I can speak from a US perspective. Not only is there the $8 billion that Joe Biden just promised in additional Israeli aid, but we are already committed to $4 billion a year that is almost exclusively in military aid. We also have facilitated Israeli settlements in ways allowing them to have a nonprofit status, uh, allowing them to have a nonprofit status 
in the United States, which makes them tax exempt. So people are donating to Israeli settlements, essentially, as if they're donating to a charity. And, and I'm sure that that, I imagine that that's the case in the UK as well. So I think those are a variety of ways that people could be taking action, right? I think people often think, what can I do? I can post on social media. Sure, you can also speak to people that you know. You can also spend time educating yourself to better understand the issue. And I'm sorry, I won't go on beyond that, but those are a few of the things that I think can be done. And I think people talking about, I, I want to remind people that Palestinians are erased we are erased when these moments are not happening. So this siege of Gaza has continued for 16 years. And the only time people pay attention to it is when Israel denounces rockets fired from Gaza and announces that it's going to bombard Gaza, or as Ben put it, mow the lawn, in the words of some of the Israeli uh, leaders and, and also some of their children. Um, I think that that's, that's disturbing, right? I mean, over 200 Palestinians have been killed in the occupied West Bank this year with no recourse. Shirin Abu Akle, a journalist, was assassinated on live television with no recourse. I mean, there's been nothing that has happened. There hasn't been a real consequence. And so I, I think also being able to speak about this issue on a regular basis and keep it in view, that is something I see Palestinians in Gaza, for example, ask about all the time. And so that is what I think we, would, we, we as Palestinians would ask people. To do. No, thank you for that, Andrew. I mean, is, is there anything you want to add, Ben? No, I mean, Andrew's covered a lot of ground there. And I think, you know, um, I think right right now, at least as well, um, uh, from, from, you know, from the perspective of, of the, I guess, the coming days, um, maybe weeks, I think there's going to be um, a real, a real need to, 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 uh, uh, reiterate and insist on almost um sort of basic basic principles right of of um uh Israel's obligations as an occupying power around um you know what what is and isn't permissible uh on what it behoves third party states to do with respect to violations of the Shiva Convention, you know, these types of things, which are not new, um, but I think are going to be, you know, unfortunately, uh, probably pretty paramount in, in the coming days, um, as well as, of course, despite the difficulty in doing this in terms of the electricity cuts and the telecommunication tower destructions, um, and the internet access problems and the, and the general sort of chaos and carnage, finding ways to make sure that people know what it's actually like inside, you know, a fenced off enclave where there is not international media. And, um, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's going to be the stuff to, to really try and kind of stay on top of. And I, I do think if people are also able to press for better media coverage, I mean, I, I, Michael, you said it, that the media coverage is quite one-sided. Um, you know, it's, it's really, uh, abominable. The way that the media has covered this issue, uh, I watched the uh, 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 ambassador to the UK, the Palestinian ambassador to the UK, tell someone during an interview, and I forgot, uh, Ben might know which channel he was on, but he told the interviewer that he had lost some family members, right? Six family members, including two children, and two additional children were critically injured. And the next question that was asked, without a moment to pause 
reflect on that or or even offer condolences was do you support Hamas or not? Which is an absurd question to somebody who's a part of the Fatah movement essentially. Um very confusing. But Yeah, it was it was Kirsty Walk on on Newsnight and it was one of many incredibly disgraceful moments which we've seen on, on British TV over the past few days. And I suppose what's especially worrying is that people are now trying to demonize anyone who who stands against it. So it's not just that there's bad journalism going on. If you try and do good journalism, you'll get called a, a terrorist sympathizer or whatever. Um, we should wrap up. Ben and Andrew, thank you so much for your time. I really, really um, do appreciate it. We've covered an awful lot of ground. Um, and I think um, it's, it's been an important discussion. Yeah, thank you for organizing it and yeah, creating the space for it. Yeah, thanks for having us, Michael. That was Ben White and Andrew Cardi talking to me about the origins of the 2023 Gaza War. Crash Course is produced and edited by Lewis Bassett and Patrick Herdman. Patrick Herdman does the sound design.